Welcome to TBA Now. I'm Keith Stern, the rabbi of Temple Beth Avodah. I am blessed to know the many extraordinary people who are connected to our congregational community. This podcast is an opportunity to get to know who they are and what they do. If you're a globe reader, Linda Matchin is a byline you must certainly recognize. Linda was with the Globe staff for over 40 years. In that time, she's covered events from all over, from the ridiculous to the sublime. Linda is now a co-editor of the Jewish Journal, and she does remarkable stories in there, and we're looking forward to seeing so much more from her. She is smart, informed, very funny, and utterly delightful. Come listen and learn. Hello, Linda, and welcome to TBA Now. Thank you so much, Rabbi, for having me. It's great to be here. Uh, we are, all of us, very excited uh, about uh, this podcast today with you because you have kind of a, an amazing story. You have been a part of the temple for a, a long time, and the work that you've done and the writing that you've done is, you have a very deep well-regarded uh, portfolio of of journalism, and I, I think that you have a kind of perspective on the world of the media as both a player and a critic, and now as an, uh, a chief editor. So I, I think that you've worn so many hats, and we're excited to have you, you know, display them and, and tell us about them. So let me ask you, you're this Canadian-born sort of socialistic background. You were married to a guy who uh, was not known for his religiosity particularly. H how is it that you end up at Beth Avodah? <laughs> um, well, in David's defense, my late husband, he was he identified very strongly as a Jew, no, just not religiously. <laughs> he was a Yiddishist. Right. <laughs> How did we end up at Beth Avodah? We moved to Boston from Winnipeg, Canada in 1978. Within a few years, we had kids and like every other parent in our circle, we joined a synagogue. And I wish I could say that there was a lot of thought that went into it, but you're the closest <laughs> neighbor to us. And it was the best decision, I think, we ever made. Well, that's a really sweet thing to say. Why was it such a good decision? Without, I'm not looking for flattery. You're just curious about why you sound so affirmative. Gosh, there are so many reasons that kind of stretch many decades. It was a very, very sort of warm and welcoming community for us. I got involved in a number of things. I, I think I was 40, age 40, when I uh, decided to be bat mitzvah finally. It was a great experience. I did the Dvar Torah, uh, interviewing all the other members of the bat mitzvah class, uh, bar bat mitzvah class, and interviewed them as to why they wanted to, at this late stage of the game, have an adult bar bat mitzvah. And it's kind of the only thing I know how to do, really, <laughs> is assimilate other people's information and turn it into something, hoping uh, it'll be coherent. And so that's what I did. And then later on, you know, as the years went by, and as the case 
as is the case for so many individuals and so many families, life took a kind of strange turn for us. David was in his mid-50s. He was unfortunately diagnosed with ALS, which was catastrophic and life-changing for our entire family. He lived for four years. It was it was tough because, you know, there's many different uh, manifestations of ALS, although people tend to think it, it's, it's all the same. It really isn't. And unfortunately, um, one of the first things that disappeared for David was his ability to speak. So it was, it was very complex. And this is where his background as an engineer really came in handy. You know, we were able to kind of jerry-rig a system whereby he could, we could kind of wedge a a computer mouse into his hand and he could speak on a kind of complicated program that he he had devised. And so we were able to communicate with him, but, and eventually, you know, paralysis set in and it became kind of an all, all hands on deck scenario. And we, you know, we did our best and there were a lot of tough times, but a lot of wonderful times we have. We're blessed with a fantastic family, but this is where the temple stepped in. I am not one accustomed to asking for help. David certainly was not somebody. He was a, a Mr. Fix-It, do-it-yourself guy. But you reach a point, and it was about two years in for us, that you, we just couldn't conceivably manage this ourselves. And I had to still work. Uh, he was no longer able to work. And one of the th lessons that I have taken from this whole misadventure was that you have to learn how to ask for help. So um, you connected me with the caring committee. And although in retrospect, I, am, I still feel somewhat embarrassed. And there were times when I'd say I even felt humiliated that I had to ask. Meals were prepared to, for us and delivered three times a week for over a year and a half from members of the, of the congregation. And they were they were so lovingly delivered and so generously given that the f after David passed and I went back to work at the Globe, the first thing I did, the first article I wrote was a story for the, f the food section about receiving help in the form of food from Temple Beth Avodah. And it was, I think, one of the best read pieces that there ever was. People for years afterwards were reminding me about it. It was just such an extraordinary act of generosity and the part of the temple that I can never forget it. And then, of course, the other thing you discover fairly quickly is that, you know, managing somebody, not just with ALS, but a, if when you're a caregiver to someone with a chronic serious disease, it's very expensive. And at one point, and, and I remember this very clearly, um, my two kids, Saul and Sarah and I came to your office and just said, we need help. Can you help us organize or facilitate a fundraiser for us. And you were, you were so kind. You didn't bat an eyelash. You said, you know, this temple is yours for whatever you need it for. And we threw an incredible bath. We raised $60,000 that night. That's a big amount of money and it was just hugely helpful to us. So, so why was it a good decision <laughs> <laughs> to join the temple? That's why, and much more as well. You said, earlier that uh, you did the Devar Torah for this uh, adult B'nai Mitzvah class because it's kind of what you knew how to do, which was to interview people and get information. When did that 
start for you? When did you realize that that was something you loved to do? No, I wish I could say that I was one of those people who knew from an early age that I believed in the cause of journalism and wanted to make the world a better place and all that. It was truly, it was truly a complete fluke that I fell into this line of work, but I loved it immediately. You're such a natural. It's surprising. Were you a big reader of journalism? Are you? Are you? I would assume that's kind of something that's always been an interest, or no? I'm what you call a late bloomer. I have to confess. I grew up in Winnipeg, Canada, in the north side of Winnipeg, uh, the North End. Which, if you know anything, if any anybody who knows anything about Winnipeg knows that the Jews only lived on in two neighborhoods: the North End and the South End. And the South End was for people who had made it. You know, were college educated. And I grew up in a in a family where you know, neither of my parents had college educations. My father, for the first 10 years of my life, was um, worked in the Shimata business. He was a, first a cutter and then became a traveling salesman. So until I was 10, he was on the road many, many months of wow. the year. And I didn't have, my parents really wanted us to get an education, but there wasn't a lot of understanding about what it was, what it meant. It just meant that you'd go to university somehow. And the univer- and there was only one university. <laughs> there was, was an option, the University of Manitoba, and you take the bus there, and it was 40 below, and you stand at the bus stop and freeze, and then you come back. I don't know. Somehow I just fell in love with writing. And I did a little bit of work on the school newspaper, and then I heard that there was a wonderful graduate program in Ottawa at Carleton University School of Journalism, mm-hmm. and I just set my sights on it and, and got accepted. Um, and fell in love with it. And I think part of the reason is that I'm a really shy person. I do not like to be the center of attention. I don't like to be the one answering the questions. (laughs) (laughs) And being able to be kind of in the thick of it, asking the questions and getting answers really filled a need for me to be able to understand important world events, to be able to satisfy the curiosity I have about just about everything Mm -hmm. without being the center of attention. So it was perfect. It was really perfect for me. And so from that point, from the graduate program, you you were launched. I guess you could say I was launched. I went back to Winnipeg, worked for the Winnipeg Tribune, the one of the two, two newspapers in the city at that time. And then I got married to David in 78, and he was moving to Boston to do graduate work at MIT. And I wanted to come with him, of course. I mean, I made the decision to get married and come with him, even though I knew I wouldn't have a work work visa. And that was going to be really tricky. So we came. I ended up working for uh, freelancing for various Canadian publications. Mm. And eventually, I got a work permit. And... um, about a year and a half into it, the Globe, the Boston Globe, uh, I've been freelancing for them, uh, sponsored me and helped me apply for a green card. And that was in 1980 that I became staff. And I I stayed there until 2016 as a staff writer and editor and stayed on a couple more years on contract. In between, sort of shifted direction into documentary filmmaking. I took a couple of uh, courses at BU and at Mass College of Art in documentary filmmaking. And 
I've sort of squeaked out three documentaries in that time as well. It's amazing. In an industry where there's a lot of uh, bouncing from paper to paper, you've been, or as papers uh, are are disappearing, uh, you've been remarkably loyally connected to one publication uh, for a long time. How do you account for that? Is it just your own dogged loyalty? No, because things have changed very, very recently. I mean, I'd say for the first 25 years that I was there, it was the norm to stay with with, with uh, the, the paper that you worked mm-hmm. at. I mean, there were many more options than there are now. I mean, the globe has really compressed itself. At the time, there were so many more things to aspire to. I mean, you could be a news reporter, you could be a feature writer, you could write about arts, you could cover the state house, you could be in the Washington Bureau. At the time, the first many years I was there, the Globe had bureaus all over the world in the Middle East and South America and Asia, Latin America. Um, And although they didn't seem to be possibilities for me because I had small children, you know, my husband was kind of rooted here in his job. There were always things I hoped I could do eventually. There, there were just tons of us who kind of spent a lifetime mm. at the Globe. And every day and every year was really different. What was your favorite beat of all? You know, it's kind of crazy. Once again, it was an accident. I mean, most of my time I've spent as a feature writer. What does that mean, Linda? It means something different now than it did originally because there was a dedicated feature section for the Globe, as many papers had. It was called the living section. Mm-hmm. You were one of a group of writers who like to take your time writing, like to write things in depth with multiple, multiple interviews and do profiles of individuals or write about concepts or themes, things that were different than just quick news hits. Um, Not everybody could do it. And not everybody wants to. I mean, the journalism is just filled with people who are adrenalized and like to just move, move, move all the time. And I, I understand that. But that kind of wasn't me. <laughs> I, I work at a slower pace. But uh, there was a point at which it was the early 1990s when I just was growing a little tired of it. And I thought it was time I moved over to the newsroom to see what that was going to be like. And I just fell into the story of my career. I was given, from day one, I was told, okay, you could be the suburban reporter, uh, whatever that meant. And one of, I swear it was the first month, I was told to write about the strange phenomenon in um, North Attleboro, Massachusetts. There was a man named Frank Fitzpatrick who was a detective. And he was, when he was about in his 40s, he started to have flashbacks about a priest named Father Porter who had abused him. And there was no, this was again, 1991-92, there was no awareness of what the phenomenon of clergy sex abuse was. He was so tormented by this and he thought, surely I could not have been the only person in this Catholic church in North Attleboro who was molested. Although he at the time didn't even have the language for it. So he put an ad in the local papers and all it said was, remember Father Porter and his phone number. And he was inundated with calls from people 
who had been in the same situation as him. And it was one of the first stories that the Globe ever did about this tragedy. I spent a year on Father Porter, tracking him down, following his path of destruction, because when it was discovered what he was doing in North Attleboro, they traveled, they transferred him to Fall River and from Fall River to Albuquerque, New Mexico, and from Albuquerque to St. Louis and from St. Louis to North Dakota. Mm. And um, I was just kind of one step ahead of the other media on a plane all the time, just following that path of where he'd been and talking to people. And as I said, it took a year to get this story done. And it laid the groundwork for the really important work the Globe did a decade later that ended up being kind of immortalized in by the Spotlight team and in the Spotlight movie. It must have been a really hard story personally to be so closely connected to this horrible person by doing the research, etc. How was that for you? Well, I have two thoughts. One is that it was a real gift to be entrusted by these people who had never told their stories to anybody right. before. I imagine being a rabbi is something similar. But it was also infuriating because the real outrage for me mm -hmm. was that, and and I ended up being a, a consultant on the Spotlight film and telling this to the, the screenwriters. Mm -hmm. The real outrage for me was that I couldn't convince the Globe to do more. Uh, it was a very Catholic paper. Right. And... I was starting to get calls from all over Massachusetts from people who wanted to tell their story, and including Worcester, which ended up to be being a real hotbed of, of sexual molestation by clergy. And hindsight is twenty twenty, right? I yes. mean, I suppose if editors could have anticipated what would be coming down the track, they might have yielded. But I, re I do remember having an argument in the hallway with one editor saying, can I please do this story, that story, this story? And he actually yelled at me and said, and a direct quote, enough with the Catholic church already. And I, you know, I had to let it go. Yeah. I tried, I, I thought, well, maybe I'll write a book about this guy, Porter. And I worked with an agent and I um, came up with a proposal and she sent it out for me. And we got all sorts of wonderful feedback a great proposal, but no one will ever read a book on clergy abuse in by the Catholic <sighs> Church. So, I mean, that was a, a lesson for me. Yeah. I think it's taught me patience. It's made me realize that everything hopefully comes in its own time. The timing has to be right. When I see injustices ahead of me, like in front of me right now that are not being dealt with, I just think, just you wait, your time will come. I mean, I hope that's not naive, but that was my experience there. Did you ever interview Porter? I did not interview him, but uh, he ended up, because of the statute of limitations, they couldn't get him on any of the charges what ha had happened here in Massachusetts. They ended up convicting him finally after he left the church and, and, and got married and had children. He molested the family babysitter <sighs> in, Mass in uh, Minnesota. I covered that trial in St. Paul, Minnesota, and he was there, you know, in the hallway saying hello. I mean, he was a real good kind of goofy guy, <laughs> was not grounded very well, to put it mildly. So, you know, I, I exchanged hellos with him in a hallway, but no, I never interviewed him. Mm. You received, as you're suggesting, uh, not, not a lot of encouragement about following the story up and uh, doing deeper research. Um, to put it mildly, yeah. I mean, I, I guess I guess you could say I was very 
bitter for a while, but you know what, what really helped was talking to the, the the spotlight screenwriters as they were sort of formulating their notion of what the film would be. Yeah, and you know they sort of said, you know, the the whole cardinal law episode and all that really that work really stood on the shoulders of what you had done, and th- I think that was sort of the end of my bitterness. It just helped to it just helped to be acknowledged, I guess. Well, you were your work was finally kind of affirmed in a really profoundly positive way. It was affirmed. I mean, the funny thing is, is that they actually wrote me into the script in an early draft, which didn't make it in. Like you know, like a lot of things don't cutting room floor and all that. But yeah, yeah. Um, but Josh Singer, one of the screenwriters, was kind enough to send me <laughs> what they'd written, which is now immortalized on my refrigerator door <laughs> with a magnet. <laughs> Oh, that's great to have that little piece. I think and it was something like, there was this reporter named Linda Matchin. She would never let a, a story go. That was, uh, like, that's all I needed. Hey, you know what? That's good. That, that's good to have. <laughs> In the work that you do as a journalist, what's the dividing line between, yeah, I, this is an interesting story and I want to tell the truth about it as opposed to, this is an interesting story and I want it to change the world? Not every story can change the world. I think the most you can hope for Maybe not in sort of quick news stories, but in in feature in longer form journalism, narrative journalism, you you hope that you can reach somebody who can identify this with the situation you're writing about and just know that they're not alone. I think mm. that is so important and um, life affirming to many people. I mean, I think we could all think about things that we've read in a publication, absolutely, that really speaks to something that we've been through and. It helps tremendously. But in terms of, you know, sort of setting out from the get-go to make a change, those, in my experience, tend to be more elaborate, research-driven stories. And I've been blessed with the opportunity to work with the Globe investigative writers and on one long, very long project, the last one I did for the Globe with the, with the Spotlight Editor, on a two-part series about home care workers. And th- this gets to, you know... I guess everything comes full circle during those four hard years when David was you know, suffering through ALS and I was the primary caregiver. I had the opportunity to see things I wouldn't have seen in any other way, which was how hard it is to be a caregiver, how easy it is to be exploited, both as a patient and as you know, one of these huge numbers of home care workers who come here often from other countries to try to make a living by helping other people. And I, I convinced the Globe to let me spend, well, I guess if they'd known how long it would take at the outset, they may not have let me, but it ended up taking a year and a half. I came to find out that many of the healthcare workers who take care of our moms and dads and sick family members are here from Ghana. Uh, and they come here hoping to make enough money to send back to their families back home uh, because their families are in dire straits. And so I got funding to go to Ghana with a home care worker who hadn't been able to afford to go back there herself for a dozen years. And we kind of met her family, myself and a photographer. And we came to understand just through watching her work, what she was up against, how exhausting her work is, how insecure it is because as soon as um, families run out of money or somebody dies, they're on their own again. And um, it was really tough. And that was an example of a story 
that I really hope people would sit up and pay attention to and do something about that. Um, maybe just maybe people would increase the salaries of home care workers and not, and not um, take advantage of them to such a degree. And the converse is that people who are very, very ill and very, very vulnerable are at the mercy of the people who take care of them. And it's a very ripe opportunity for theft, for physical abuse, emotional abuse. Yeah. And by combing through all sorts of records in, in district courthouses, I was able to find far too many cases of this happening. And, you know, can I say this changed the world? I don't know. I think it takes many, you know, many other kinds of articles followed in other publications and changes have been made and are being made. But, you know, in journalism, you have to take, you're playing the long game. Yeah. And you're establishing a set of building blocks that hopefully will create a tower that someday we'll be able to you know, look out in, over the distance and say, we've got to do something about yeah. this now. You know, one of the things that was really compelling about that two-parter was that as a, as a reader, and um, I do love to read, and I love the artful way that you put it all together. And you know, one could just read the first part. Oh, you know, these these workers are exploited and it's terrible and all these. It's really a trope at this point for for what happens for immigrants who who come here and how they're um, really abused and stuff. But I think it's equal, such. But then you have this other story to tell, and it's not a convenient story particularly because it breaks a uh, what I know is from you, a very sensitive leaning to um, support the plight of those who are exploited and who are uh, in trouble or any other descriptions. But in fact, the complicity uh, that some folks have had in stealing and, and hurting the people they're, they're hired to take care of, I mean, it's an important and really sad part of the story that has to be included to make a full, a full and realistic accounting of of the situation. Do you ever uncover stuff and go, "Oh, I, I wish I didn't know this"? <laughs> no, <laughs> just bring it on. <laughs> <laughs> See, that's why you're such a good journalist. In the world of contemporary uh, journalism, and whether it's you know, in the news media, whether it's, you know, long form journalism in the New Yorker, et cetera. Are there any particular people that you would say, this is a person you have to read, or this is an article that really sticks in your head as something that you say, this is a, this is an example par excellence of great journalism? Yeah. I mean, the name that comes to mind right now, because I'm trying to read everything I can about him, and he has a new book, is Frank Bruni, who's with the New York Times. I think he, he left the staff, if I'm correct, and he has a newsletter now. He's a really compelling writer, but it's my favorite kind of writing that I try to aspire to, which is using the first person to tell a story that's much more universal. He's got incredible eye. He's, I'm saying that ironically because, in fact, what he's, yeah. he's been writing about is his blindness. Uh, he's He's been going blind and losing his vision. And he's been writing about that experience, but about how it has made him realize that everybody is kind of wearing a suit of armor that's sort of, if you could only read what you are on a sign on it, you'd realize, you know, hi, I'm 
you know, Linda who lost her husband from ALS, or, you know, I'm Frank Bruni, who's may look really famous, but I'm actually losing my vision or, you know, everybody has that torment that they carry inside them, or if they don't right now, they will eventually. Yeah. Um, I love to write in the first person. It's often done wrong. It's, you know, it's often gratuitous. It only, in my experience, works really well if um, you're able to tell a story from the first person that in which you could share experience that you wouldn't be able to convey otherwise. So some of the stories I've liked the best have been in the first person. I mean, this may sound trivial, but one that I get so much feedback on to this day, even strangers talk about, it, it, it was a story I wrote about my dog and how I got him shortly after David died. Um, my son Saul gave him to me because he felt like I needed a companion. And I was not, to put it mildly, a dog person. In fact, I tried to give it back, which <laughs> didn't go over very well with him. But I used, I told the story as a way of showing that the dog kind of brought me back to life. Uh, I've been, I, you know, felt so isolated for so long, which, you know, chronic illness will do to a family. And he just, he literally got me out and he made me laugh. And I wrote it so that people would understand that there was hope after despair. And I guess the most, one of the most rewarding moments of my career was probably like three years after I wrote that, I went to an event at, uh, the, the, it was a dinner at the Boston Symphony. We all had to wear name tags. And a woman was sitting next to me and she was staring at my name tag. I had no idea who she was. And she just looked at me and she said, do you still have Coco? <laughs> and she remembered his name and she turned out had lost her partner and she got a dog. And you now again, this speaks to the human need to want to be able to connect with other people and know that your experiences are shared by others. The ways that we best understand the world is through the prism of other people's experiences. Um, otherwise, in isolation, what is there to reflect on? I think that's very true. I, I really feel like I need to ask you about the changing world, like the profoundly changing world of journalism and what's your take on it? So much is collapsing, falling away, online only. Uh, is the future of journalism online only? Uh, and how does that feel to you? What's, what's it look like out there from your very unique perspective? God, I can't answer the question about whether it's online only. I think the question is, what is the future of journalism per se? And I think that's shifting. I mean, it is, it's not very environmentally sound to keep cutting down trees and printing newspaper. And it's also very expensive. Uh, I get that. You know, I'll date myself and say, you know, there's nothing like the feeling of sitting down with a cup of coffee. How many times people have said this to me Yes, in the morning and reading the paper and, you know, I mean, that's true, but that's not the, it's, that's not the life experience of younger people anymore. So that ain't going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> the bigger question to me is not online versus print, but what is the future of newspapers or whatever entity comes after that with staffs shrinking and mandates becoming less ambitious. And 
I know that sometimes it was a pain in the neck even to have to bring the Newton tab in the house to, to sort of bend down in the morning and get her off the driveway. But when I heard that it was leaving, my heart was broken. Yeah, I think the future is in local news now, and there is a really kind of robust movement happening to try to reinvigorate it. Two of my colleagues are, uh, well, one colleague and one other journalist, uh, Ellen Clegg, formerly the editorial page editor of The Globe, and Dan Kennedy, um, a, a journalism professor at Northeastern, have started an, an enterprise called What Works, which is a, a series of podcasts about different experiments in local news and how, how successful they are. And, and it's incredibly, incredibly um, inspiring. And that, that's the direction I've chosen to go since leaving The Globe. Kind of out of the blue, I was asked if I would join the staff, the two-person staff <laughs> of the Jewish Journal, which is uh, the largest independent Jewish newspaper in New England. I think it's the last remaining independent Jewish paper in Massachusetts since yeah. the demise of the Jewish Advocate. And Steve Rosenberg, who is the editor, it comes out it comes out in paper and online every second week, um, and it's free if anybody wants to subscribe. Steve Rosenberg was a reporter at The Globe for many years, and he's the editor and publisher of it, and he's sort of single-handedly picking off old Globe people to come work for him. There are just some you know, phenomenal people like David Shribman, who's a Pulitzer Prize winner and was the Washington bureau chief who writes an op-ed every month for us. Mm. Um, so here I am, you know, starting something new, but realizing that there really is value even if the even if the readership is small at this point, I like to say we're small, but we we aspire to be mighty, <laughs> uh -huh. and I think we'll get there. We're trying to raise money right now to expand to Newton and Brookline. I mean, I don't think I really appreciated the value of a Jewish newspaper before this, but now, at a time when there are so many stories that have bearing on Judaism, like the rampant anti-Semitism appearing everywhere. You know, I'm working on a story this morning about the St. Patrick's Day parade in Boston, where there was a contingent of neo-Nazis that showed up, oh, and geez. you know, the police weren't allowed to do anything about it because of the First Amendment, and they didn't have anything. There was nothing on their banner except "Keep Boston Irish," mm -hmm. but it wasn't it wasn't illegal. Right. So there they were protesting in front of everybody, protesting what immigrants, Jews, you know, who knows. Without these stories being told, how the heck would we anybody know? Yeah, yeah. What danger is lurking? Not to mention, you know, the plight of Jews in in Ukraine right now, and on and on it goes. So, you know, when I was first offered the job, Steve said to me, you know, you you came from the Globe, and you were you're writing for the Washington Post, and you're, you know, you're writing for the Forward. Do you? worry that this is a step down for you. I said, no, this is a step up for me. Wow. Because it really gives me the opportunity in a small way to try to shape the agenda a little bit. And really, you know, with my four decades of experience of writing stories, sort of understanding what stories matter and what has impact and, you know, putting it out there, even though we're really a skeleton staff it's, and it's tough. But it feels really important. I mean, God knows the American Jewish community is such a ripe and multifaceted and, and significant collection of stories. There's so much going on. I'm really happy that you were that you took that job and that um, it how wonderful to have an independent 
Jewish media source that people can really learn from and get information from. You've done so much in journalism over the past four decades, and then you ended up sort of doing an interesting uh, venture into documentaries. What led you in that direction? And uh, tell us uh, what it did for you and what you produced. All three of the films that I've made started out as Boston Globe articles. And because I've always had an interest in visuals and a belief that some stories, no matter how good a writer you are, are better told visually than uh, in print or digitally. I've always been curious about how stories can be enhanced cinematically, visually. Mm -hmm. And in one of the first stories that I, one of the really early stories that I did for the Globe was in 1983. I wrote a story about the revival of Yiddish, which seems almost silly now because there's been so much um, vitality in the Yiddish community in terms of theater, in terms of music and klezmer and so on and so on. But it, that was not the case back then. And I went to New York and I interviewed um, some of the last remaining actors at the original actors of like the Folks Bina Theater. And I went to the Forward, the Forward, it was the, it was the Jewish Daily Forward at the time and interviewed the editor. And I just was completely blown away. I mean, it, here I was seeing Yiddish, which I grew up surrounded by and hearing my parents speak and my grandparents speak. And do you speak? I understand it. I speak some. I've studied it at Harvard Extension and Workman Circle, but I can't say I'm, I can't say I'm fluent in it. Mm -hmm. um, but to see Yiddish used as a working language by a newspaper editor and his staff was amazing to me. And True, I was a young reporter at that time and didn't have all the skills I have now, but I, it was abundantly clear there was no way on earth I was going to be able to do justice to this without some sort of visual component to it. And yeah. just by chance, I had quite recently met a woman at a party who said she was a, she was a Jewish filmmaker. And you know, when we parted and said goodbye, she said, hey, if you get any ideas, let me know. And uh, maybe it was two weeks later that I, I went there and I called her and said, I have an idea. As a matter of fact... <laughs> As a matter of fact, and so it took six years. We got, we ended up getting full funding from the National Endowment from the Humanities. I mean, this was beginner's luck, really. And we made this film, which came out in '89, premiered at the Jewish Museum in New York. It was at the Coolidge Corner. Did really well, and I fell in love with the medium. But then I had two small children, and you know, sort of years went by before I even contemplated doing it again. And then another story came up that I just thought would make a fantastic film. And then another one, uh, both of them set in West Africa, both in the Canadian Arctic in West Africa about acrobats in both places that work together to um, help young people. It's, it's a very slow moving art form and it's frustrating in the sense that, you know, if I had to go out and raise money for every newspaper article I wrote, <laughs> nothing would ever get done. It's very hard sort of to have this huge pushback right at the beginning, slowing you down. Yeah. But there's just, there's just nothing like the collaborative teamwork that goes into making a film and just sort of, and the beauty of it. The medium is so very special. And I think, I would assume it's been gratifying for you to watch over the past, I don't know, less than 10 years where documentaries, thanks 
probably largely to Netflix and HBO, have suddenly hit this real stride and become very popular. Look, I mean, obviously there's Tiger King and that sort of stuff, you know, where it's, you know, documentary entertainment. But nonetheless, I, I think surprisingly in the world we live, documentaries have become something that uh, people look forward to, that that seek out. And, and uh, I, I think that that's a, for all the negative things we can say about what the American public consumes for art and for knowledge, uh, it is uh, gratifying, uh, to say the least. Yeah, I have to say I did not see this coming. In fact, on on the not-so-great side, you're competing to, to such a degree with other filmmakers and PBS and all the right. other sort of streaming services. They have their niches that are very particular, and if you don't fit quite into it, it's really hard to get funding or support. But the creativity that is going into this work now is really is ast- is astonishing, and I think documentaries can tell stories like like nothing else can. Linda, what are you working on now? At this very moment, yeah, this speaks to the fact that there are Jewish stories everywhere. Um, I was uh, yesterday assigned to do a story about the. Um, the 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 St. Patrick's Day parade and and sort of just a quick reaction to um, the neo Nazi presence there, but wouldn't you know it? Who would have expected it? But the guy that organizes the St. Patrick's Day parade is Jewish. No way. Way. <laughs> <laughs> and his story is fantastic. I mean. I, you know, I spoke to, he's 39. I spoke to his mom this morning. She sent me his bar mitzvah speech. <laughs> <laughs> he's always been, you know, he wants to turn it around from the old guard and, you know, the folks who were, didn't want to have an LGBTQ presence yeah, at the, yeah. you know, and uh, at the parade and really make it, as he said, one of his more memorable lines, I don't just want Irish people to come to the, the parade. I want Jewish people to come to the parade. I want all kinds of people to come to the parade. So, yeah, so it really speaks to how, you know, writing, writing for the Jewish journal, you get a, a different prism through which to look at life. You know, it's narrower, it's Jewish, but I wouldn't, you wouldn't be doing these stories otherwise. This right, great. right. Um, I'm wondering if there are particular things that you see as the editor, as a person that is still so actively involved in journalism. What are some stories happening in, in the Jewish world that are compelling to you right now? Well, I'm, I'm associate editor, so I'm, I'm number two of two. <laughs> but I do have input into ideas. What would I be doing? I'm really interested, for example, in, in worlds that are disappearing. And so when I was freelancing for The Forward, I did a piece that mattered a lot to me about a vaccination clinic that was set up for Holocaust survivors. Mm. And so I spent the day there and had the opportunity to listen to these stories of people, the likes of which I had never really heard before. Not stories about the, the hell they'd been through, but the stories of the life they made for themselves. And yeah. let's face it, they're not going to be around that much longer. And I think it's really important to be able to capture those stories in a way that, see, this is the challenge of writing about things that tend to get written about a lot, being sure that readers don't think, oh, another Holocaust survivor story. You know, yeah, it's the yeah. wisdom that comes with age for these people. It's the way they look at the Ukraine situation now, 
It's, you know, what their hopes are for their grandchildren. I would like to do more about that. Yeah. And um, I, I think it's I think it's coming, but I, I think I, I would love if there was a budget to do it visually as well with, if not video, then at least really strong photography. Yeah, I, I, I think there is something so deeply compelling about that. And, and I, I will always be utterly in awe of people who had experiences so horrible, so horrendous, including, you know, losing their entire family, being losing their partner and their children, and yet somehow come to this country and end up creating a second family and a new life that is filled with gratitude and success. And it's it's really extraordinary. I think the stories are enormously compelling. And I think stories of resilient personalities have never been more important here, it seems to me, than, than now as we're launching into the great unknown. Linda, I, I have really enjoyed talking with you today. And uh, you are um, such a mention and smart. And the work that you've done has been just has illuminated so many places that I would otherwise not even know to look. And it means so much to me. And I know that the community of Beth Abada is really happy uh, that you and your family chose this um, as a place to live your Jewish lives uh, in the Boston area. And um, we look forward to uh, continuing to find the best things to celebrate with you. Thank you. This has been a real gift for me. Thank you so much. Thank you, Linda. Find all of our episodes on BethAvoda.org or on podcast sites everywhere. Special thanks to our brilliant producer, Amy Tonkanaji, and our intrepid engineer, Mike Kligerman. 